Well, we've been talking for a few months now about some upward practices or upward spiritual disciplines. These are things that we are called and invited to do to deepen our relationship with God. And so in January, we looked at the practice of worship. We talked about what worship is and how it works and how it brings us into the presence of God with the right attitude, with the right mindset, with the right self-awareness of who we are in relation to who he is. We talked about, uh, in the month of February, we talked about discipleship. What does it mean for us to be committed to growing in faith, growing in Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus, and allowing the Spirit of God to shape our lives through the the truth of his word and the power of his spirit. So this month, we're going to look at a third upward-directed practice, and it's the practice of stewardship. Stewardship. I want to share with you this morning about uh, the subject of the sacred trust that we are given as stewards in God's kingdom. And of course, this parable that Mike just read for us from Luke 16 is all about stewardship. Stewardship is one of those things that uh, can be hard to talk about. Sometimes people can be touchy about the subject of their possessions, their belongings, their money, and uh, what the church should or shouldn't have to do with all of that. It's been, honestly, a, a good few years, I think four years to be exact, since I've taught on this subject. And so I felt like it was, it was high time that we revisited this together and really dug in uh, to what this theme is all about in our lives as followers of Jesus. So, so let's begin to think together about the biblical practice of stewardship. And we're going to look at this theme, this practice, for the month of March over the next four weeks. And we're going to use this parable from Luke 16 because there's a lot here for us to talk about and unpack uh, with regard to this subject of what it means to be stewards of all that we've received from God. So where do we begin? Well, first and foremost, there's something very basic about stewardship that we all need to understand. And this parable that Jesus tells is a great way for us to begin to understand the concept of stewardship. You know, stewardship is one of those terms or phrases that, uh, one of those concepts that is, is used in the Bible, referred to in the Bible, but it's not something that we talk about commonly in our culture. It's not a word that, we're, that most of us are familiar with or use regularly. So here's, here's where we should begin. Right? Let's just understand together what Jesus is telling us about the nature of stewardship. What is it? Stewardship is the act of managing or caring for something that has been entrusted to you. That's what it is. It's the act of managing or caring for something that has been entrusted to you. So in Luke 16, verse 1, at the very beginning point of the story that Jesus told, we hear these words. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Wasting His possessions, that is, the rich man's possessions. He wasn't wasting his own possessions, this manager. He was wasting the possessions of the one to whom those things belong, the rich man. The manager, or the steward, was responsible for the care of this man's estate, the care of this man's possessions. And he was wasting those possessions irresponsibly. He developed a bad reputation. 
And as a result, his job was at risk. He was about to be fired if he didn't get his act together and turn things around. So this accusation, really, that's been brought against this particular manager or steward gets right to the heart of what stewardship is about. It's based on trust. At the heart of stewardship is trust between the owner and the steward. The owner is entrusting to the care of the steward what rightfully belongs to the owner. So to waste the master's possessions then is to misuse your position of trust for your own personal gain. That's what we're being told was happening in the life of this particular manager. This was a basic failure of responsibility and integrity. To the contrary, stewardship requires being responsible and trustworthy and even shrewd in taking care of someone else's possessions or resources. Here, the NIV uses the word manager instead of the word steward. Why? Because it's more familiar to us. The translators thought, well, you know, steward is one of those words that people aren't so familiar with anymore, might not understand what it means, but everybody understands the concept of a manager. So they chose to use that particular word, but the King James Version and many other versions actually still use the word steward here instead of the word manager. They're really synonymous with one another. And Jesus' words make it clear what this man was responsible for. His job as a steward was to care for his master's possessions. Now, what's interesting about this story is if you look closely, and I'll encourage you to do this later, maybe you'll just have to take my word for it right now, but if you look closely beyond verse 1, this particular word, manage or steward, or some form of that word, gets used seven times in the first seven verses. Whether it's the word manage or manager or management, you look closely and you'll see all these variations of the very same word. And the point is, this story is all about stewardship. It's all about what it means to be a steward of the master's possessions. But the real key to understanding Jesus' point in telling the story is to recognize this this isn't just a story for the purpose of entertainment. Jesus was a great storyteller. He could captivate any audience with the telling of a good tale. But this was a a particular kind of story, right? Jesus often spoke in parables. And parables were intended to teach the listeners, those who would hear Jesus telling the story, it was intended to teach them a life principle. The idea is to listen to the story and place yourself in the story and identify with the characters in such a way that you can learn a lesson from their example, good or bad. That's the point of a parable. Parables are illustrations whose lesson is meant to be applied by all who hear them, including us here today. So the basic point is that Jesus expects good stewardship from each one of us 
by way of comparison to the character in the story that he's just told. And what's uniquely challenging here, I think, is that this particular story, right, suggests that the, the manager in the story is under question. His integrity is under question. His responsibility is under question. His reputation is at stake. He's about to be fired because he's accused of misusing the possessions of his master. And you could take from that in a sense that each one of us are likewise questioned in one sense. The question is, are we good stewards or bad? Are we trustworthy stewards or untrustworthy? Are we poor stewards like the man in Jesus' story appears to be at first? Or are we good stewards? Sometimes we might not even be aware that we're stewards at all. We might forget that that's the role we've been given, that we've been trusted with things that don't really belong to us. To illustrate my point, here's a story about a young man that was a pretty poor steward because he forgot, I think, or wasn't thinking about what it meant to be a steward. This comes from a blog uh, entry by a young man named Bill Lee, and he's writing about a memory that he had back when he was in college. He writes, When I was a college freshman, I borrowed my resident assistant's car to drive a friend and myself on an off-campus errand. To impress my friend, I hit the accelerator when the light turned green and left no small amount of rubber on the pavement. But rather than being impressed, my friend said to me, remind me to never lend you my car. That was not only a blow to my pride, it was a memorable lesson in stewardship. For just like the car that I borrowed, this planet doesn't belong to us. We were given authority and are held responsible as God's stewards for what happens down here to the physical world. And whether or not we like it, we are meant to be responsible for what God has given us care over. We're responsible for how we treat it and what we do with it. As stewards, we are to manage God's resources well according to his desires and purposes. Now, most of us can identify with the concept of being a steward of of money or tangible property like a friend's car, for example. But when it comes to taking responsibility for our stewardship of other more intangible things, the concept can become a little fuzzy. Like, for example, what does it mean to be a good steward of your abilities or your time or your relationships with others or even the created world around you? What is it that we're really responsible for as stewards under God's oversight? What is it that he's given us to manage and to care for? Well, those questions lead us to a second key insight from this parable. You see, I think Jesus is intentional here in the telling of this story and wants us to readily identify the rich man with the God of heaven and earth and then identify ourselves with the steward. 
So the point then becomes this. As God's stewards, we have been entrusted to care for what rightfully belongs to him. That's the heart of the story. As God's stewards, we have been entrusted to care for what rightfully belongs to him. As I mentioned, the trouble is we often fail to remember that everything we have and think we possess really comes to us as a gift from our Father in heaven. What was at issue with the steward in Jesus' parable and is always at issue with us too is the misuse of someone else's possessions. That means we need to clarify the question of ownership. You see, a steward, like the one in Jesus' parable, becomes careless and untrustworthy when they become wasteful or presumptuous with their master's possessions. So the key distinction then between stewardship and ownership is caring for what belongs to another versus caring for something that you believe belongs to you. If we're like the steward in this story, then what are the possessions, so-called possessions, that really belong to God and not to us? Well, let me warn you, that the Bible's answer to that question may be a bit uncomfortable. For according to Scripture, the answer is that everything we have actually belongs to God. That's why even using the word possessions is a little sketchy. I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to lean toward using the word belongings instead of possessions because it reminds me that I've been given things as a trust from the Lord. They're all, everything I have is a gift from Him. From the clothes on your back to the car that you drove here to the house that you woke up in, I mean, for that matter, even the sun, the moon, and the stars that govern the hours of the day and night, they all belong to the Lord of heaven and earth. The biblical reality is simply this. Everything in all creation belongs to God because He made it. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Our very life is a gift from God. And this means that perhaps more than anything else, what really causes us to be poor stewards of the resources that God gives us care over is the myth of ownership. Do you really own anything? Or is God the true owner of all that you've received? The myth of ownership is the mistaken notion that we can do whatever we like with whatever we think belongs to us. That mindset often leads people into poor stewardship of what they've been given. In contrast to that way of thinking, the Bible puts forward for us a very different, a very radical approach to thinking about possessions or belongings. The psalmist begins Psalm 24 with this declaration. Listen to these words. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world 
and all who live in it. So even those who don't know that they belong to the Lord, belong to the Lord. Every person who breathes the breath of life has received that gift from the creator of heaven and earth. There's a classic scene uh, in the, the children's movie Finding Nemo. Lots of great scenes in that movie, but one in particular that I remember is the one on the docks of Sydney's Harbor where Nemo is finally turned up and uh, there are a flock of seagulls, right? You remember the scene? And each and every single one of them is crying out together at the same time when they spy Nemo out of the water, mine, 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 mine. They all want dibs on Nemo. And much like those seagulls, I think that, that's the thought that fills our heads when it comes to earthly possessions, doesn't it? Anybody here a parent that can relate you know, to this reality as you've seen it lived out in the lives of your children? Anybody here ever witnessed a squabble between your, your children about a toy that one claims belongs to them and the other wants to use it? Or in our house, it happens to be clothes. The clothes get traded around from one person to the next. And if permission wasn't granted, you better watch out. There's a fight coming. <laughs> those are my jeans. You didn't ask if you could wear those. In response to the divine claim of Psalm 24, listen to this. Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a great biblical scholar uh, some decades ago and also happened to be prime minister of the Netherlands at the turn of the 20th century, he proclaimed this. He said, there's not one square millimeter of this entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. It belongs to me. And he's right. It all belongs to Jesus. Even your daughter's jeans. That means everything in the, in the world is God's, both by right of creation and by right of preservation as well. All that we have added to creation the skills and the abilities that we've used and the things that we've developed are from God in the first place. So in a sense, we don't even own the fruit of our own work. You might think to yourself, well, you know, I made something. I made money. I did the work. I made money. Who gave you the ability to do the work? Where did it come from? God reminded the Jews of this very thing just before they entered the promised land which was a gift to them from God. In Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, we read these words. And think about how these apply to your own mindset about possessions. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. In fact, we could go back even further than that. 
we could go all the way back to Genesis, the very beginning of the account of the relationship between God and humankind. Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? He gave them stewardship over creation. He gave them responsibility for all that he had created. And then there's something else to think about. Not only does God's right of ownership apply because it's the right of creation and the right of preservation, in a sense. He's the one that keeps us living and breathing. But it also stands true that God is the owner of all things because of what we might call the right of redemption. The right of redemption. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, even our bodies belong to God on the basis that they've been bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Listen to this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And what was the price? that was paid to purchase your life, to ransom your life from the pit of hell, it was the blood of Jesus. Verses like this remind me of my younger days growing up in in the Reformed Church when I would go to catechism. Anybody else have have to go to catechism classes? And uh, it wasn't exactly the most appealing and enjoyable experience of my younger years, but, but I still remember being taught and having to learn, actually having to memorize some of the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is you know, one of the great statements of faith in the Reformed tradition. And so I committed to memory as a young boy uh, the very first question and answer in the Reformed Catechism. Maybe some of you are familiar with this and others are probably thinking, what's the Heidelberg Catechism? Question number one, it's a whole series of questions and answers that kind of lays out systematic theology for for young people to understand what they believe and why they believe it. Question number one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's true, isn't it? If your life has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've come into relationship with God by confessing your faith in what Jesus has done for you, you don't belong to yourself anymore. I mean, you never did in the first place, really. But you thought you did. Now you should know better. Because Jesus has purchased your life for God with the ransom of his own blood. So this is the fundamental principle then upon which the concept of stewardship is based. God owns everything and we are simply managers or administrators or stewards acting on God's behalf. We are given the assignment as God's steward to manage what rightfully belongs to him. And while God has graciously entrusted us with the care, the development, and the enjoyment of everything that he owns, as his stewards, we are responsible to manage those things well. 
according to his desires and his purposes. So what's often talked about is uh, the three T's of stewardship. Are you a good steward of your time, your talents, and your treasures? Do you understand that those things have come to you by the hand of God? Do you view them in that way and act as a responsible steward with those things? In a sense, stewardship isn't just about what we do with money, although that's perhaps the easiest place to begin to think about it and talk about it. It's really much broader than that. It's about how we care for everything that God's given us, including life itself and the creation, the world in which we live. So it has to do with our money. It has to do with our possessions. It has to do with our time. It has to do with our talents or our abilities. It has to do with our relationships. It has to do with pretty much everything. This is a broad concept, and that's why it's so important for us to understand. Recognizing the priority of stewardship and practicing it comes right down to seeing and acting upon the reality that everything in life is a gift from God. Let me give you an example. Just for fun here, imagine that your birthday is approaching. Anybody have a birthday coming up? Okay, I see somebody back there in a green shirt. What's your name? Andrea. Andrea. All right. So, Andrea, I'm just going to interact with you momentarily here a second as an illustration. What if I came to you and I said, Andrea, it's your birthday. Why don't you give me $10 so I can go buy you a present? Right. (laughs) Clever uh, little idea at work here, right? Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He wrote, Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, already his. So that when we talk of a man doing anything of God or giving anything to God, I'll tell you what it's really like. It's like a child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does it, and he's pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on that transaction. The point is, everything we give to God came from him in the first place. That's what stewardship is all about. What kind of stewardship does our Father take pleasure in? The key to this whole parable becomes really clear in verses 8 and 9. So let's go there with the time we have left. I want to wrap up here shortly. The Master... Jesus says, Luke 16, verses 8 and 9, the master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. 
For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, what do those words amount to? What's the takeaway? What's Jesus driving at with these words? This seems like a crazy story, doesn't it? A dishonest manager who's at risk of losing his job gets commended for cutting the debt that's owed to his master? Maybe you're reading this thinking, wait a minute, this, this is confusing. How does this work? Why did he get commended? Well, here's what it comes to. Let me unpack this for you. Jesus says commendable stewardship is using God's resources to make friends, bless others, and honor your master. That's the point of this parable. Jesus says commendable stewardship is using God's resources to make friends, bless others, and honor your master. Now let me explain where I come up with that notion from this story. And here's where the interpretation of this parable can be very confusing at first glance because it seems like Jesus is commending and rewarding this steward in the parable for being shrewd by lowering the debt that's owed to his master. How does that make any sense? From a financial perspective, this doesn't exactly seem like the best movie could have made. You'd think, actually, that the owner might be mad about it. What do you mean? They owed me 1000 and you cut it to 500 Incompetence and dishonesty seem to be rewarded at first. Perhaps you're thinking, as I did when I first read this, what, what makes this guy's actions commendable? Why is this steward, whose reputation is already questionable to begin with, actually complimented by the master, rewarded by the master for collecting less money than was actually owed? Have you thought about that? Well, as you ponder it right now, let me share with you a couple of interpretive keys or insights that are maybe not readily apparent when you read the story, but if you dig a little deeper and you do some research, there's some phenomenal lessons in this story. And yet they're hard to see through the lenses of our 21st century Western worldview. What many biblical commentators have recognized is that the charging of interest on a financial loan was actually against the Jewish law. It was unbiblical. It was not condoned. And yet Jews at the time of Jesus would often dance around that requirement of the law by charging interest on products lent instead of on money because they had a legalistic mindset. Well, if the law says you can't charge interest on a financial loan, I won't loan somebody money. I'll just loan them some olive oil. And then I can charge interest because I'm technically following the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. So Jews at that time then often danced around this requirement by charging interest on products instead of on money. 
And notice what was lent in the story. Products, not money. In this case, olive oil and wheat. So it's likely then that this steward wasn't only protecting his own neck, right, by reducing the debt of his master's debtors, trying to make friends so that if he does get fired, he'll have people that will welcome him. That's one motive here. But essentially, what commentators have said is that he was likely removing the interest from the loans that were given. So this had a triple effect then. On the one hand, it made friends for him because the debtors were like, great, I only owe 500 instead of 1,000? That's awesome, right? Secondarily, it... um, it blessed, the, it blessed the debtors. It made friends for him, so he had some self-interest at stake. It blessed the debtors. Those are the first two. And then third, it had the effect of making his master actually look pious in the process. It made his master look like, hey, okay, I'm just going to do the right thing. I'm going to cut the interest on this loan, and I'm going to just ask you to pay me back what I gave you in the first place, which was the, the right way of loaning something to someone, according to Scripture. So this is shrewdness at work. This is the shrewdness that the unjust steward is commended for. He acts in a way that earns him favor, that blesses the debtors, and makes his master look good all at the same time. Pretty clever, if you think about it. In fact, do you know what being shrewd really means? It's a word that's not always thought of as a compliment. We often use it in a negative sense. But that's not how Jesus uses it here. It's having or showing sharp powers of judgment. It's being astute and acting with a degree of cleverness in a particular situation. That's what being shrewd is. So the question is, Are are you shrewd in how you act as a steward of all that God has placed in your hands? And then you see the point that Jesus makes with this parable is that the unjust steward in the story, the shrewd steward in the story, is a man of the world, not a man of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, come on, you guys. If this guy can act shrewdly as a steward, how much more should those who follow me act shrewdly as stewards of all they've received? So this is by way of comparison. Jesus is saying, if he could do something like that, how much more are you capable of? With the spirit of the living God at work in your life and with the recognition that all you've received is from God, a gift from him, How capable are you of acting shrewdly with that which has been placed in your hands? So Jesus says, if if people of, of the world are wise and shrewd enough to use resources to make friends for themselves, how much more should people of the light be able to do the same? The steward in this story He was self-motivated. He was protecting his own skin. He wasn't doing this for the glory of God. 
he, he might have been doing it in a sense to make his master look good, but really he was doing it for his own selfish motives in case he lost his job. But you see, in our case, we don't have to protect our skin because God will protect it for us. We are called to be shrewd stewards for an even higher purpose than the one illustrated in the story that Jesus told. And this insight then, I I think, really challenges us to the very core of our materialism. Doesn't it? All that we have has been given to us by God, not simply for the purpose of our own consumption and, and enjoyment, but for the blessing of others and for the deepening of relationships, which God values above all else. So one commentator uh, writes in in summarizing the heart of this parable, uh, he says, money is meant to be a source of blessing. Not just to us, but to others. It's to be used to bless you, your neighbors, and the world around you. This is why I love a memorable scene from one of my favorite movies. And I'm going to show it to you in just a moment. It's a scene from the musical Les Miserables, where Jean Valjean is caught stealing the priest's silver. You remember what he says, the priest? If you've seen this, you're familiar with the story. He's brought back by the police. And the bishop says to Valjean, you forgot. You forgot. I gave you these also. And then he takes the two two silver candlesticks on his kitchen table and gives them to Jean Valjean. You forgot. I gave you these also. Why would you leave the best behind? Take a look. For you are weary And the night is cold out here Though our lives are very humble What we have, we have to share There is wine here to revive you There is bread to make you strong a bed to rest till morning, rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today, bless our dear sister and our honored guest.
Monsignor. We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for 